0: I don't know whether you've ever heard the name Eric Weinhammer Mayer before. I never have. I'm not even too sure that's the right way to pronounce it. But I came across this startling bit of information about this man. He calls himself an unrealistic optimist. And that is a good description since he was the first blind climber ever to reach the top of Mount Everest. Now he does business consulting and charity work, helping people see the world in new ways. Asked by Fast Company magazine what he looks for in teammates, his response sums up what faith is all about. He said, I look for people who have an unrealistic optimism about life. I hear people say seeing is believing. I want people who believe the opposite. Believing is seeing. That's actually what we've been learning about faith over the last nine weeks as we or this is the ninth week when we've been studying the book of Hebrews. What does really, does it mean to live by faith? And we've learned that there are two realities, a visible reality that we can see with these physical eyes, and an invisible reality that we cannot see with these physical eyes, but it's just as real. In fact, it holds the key to understanding the reality that we see with our eyes and therefore is the basis on which we live and make wise choices. And we have been looking at several illustrations from the Old Testament about what this kind of faith in invisible reality looks like in the various dimensions of life. We have drawn upon some big names from the Old Testament from the history of God's people Israel whom he chose through whom to work out his purposes in bringing this messed up world and setting it right with him. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Now even those who are, do not know the Bible well and may not even be followers of Christ know these names. So it is not surprising that those names would show up in an illustration of a life of faith. But the individual that we look at this morning just doesn't fit. It's like those puzzles that sometimes we worked on, you know, to pass away the time. You're shown six words, which one doesn't fit? Or five pictures, which one doesn't fit? This individual doesn't fit. Now you might say, well, that's all very interesting, but why should I bother to listen? Because today we're going to talk about faith in individual, invisible reality, That allows us to lay a hold of the future, believing God for the future, that breaks the power of the past. Believing God for the future that breaks the power of the past in our lives. One of my newfound authors, Mark Buchanan, makes this observation. Who will you be? That is as crucial to your full identity as who you have been or have become. The future shapes you as much as the past or present, maybe more Destiny every bit as much as history determines identity. Destiny as much as history, if not more, determines identity. I don't know your past, most of you. But I do know that many people are haunted by their past, trapped by their past, and driven by the past to make unwise choices in the present, and therefore mortgage the future. And the story of this surprising individual in the Hebrews hall of faith is crucial for you and me to grasp because it paints a picture of a future that is pregnant with possibilities. And laying hold of that future by faith is a key to breaking the power of the past in your life and forging a new identity for yourself. Who is she? Verse 31 of Hebrews 11 By faith the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She doesn't fit for three reasons. First of all, she's a woman. Now earlier on, Sarah was mentioned, but in conjunction with her husband, Abraham. All the others were men. She's the only woman who's mentioned by herself. Secondly, she's a prostitute. That alone renders her unfit for this company. And thirdly, she's not an Israelite. She's a Canaanite foreigner. How did this woman end up in the hall of faith? That's the story for this morning. And in order to understand that story, we need to grasp a little bit of Jewish history. Some of you are familiar with it, some of you may not be. In fact, we need to go back over 3,000 years. And I'll begin when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt. They had become so numerous that Pharaoh had got scared that they would turn on him in a time of battle. And so they were cruelly oppressed by slave masters. God raised up a man named Moses and if you were in church last week we looked at him. God used him to lead the people out through some amazing miracles he allowed, moved the heart of Pharaoh to release these slaves. He brought them out through several more miracles of providence and sustenance across that part of the world that we know today as Saudi Arabia. And brought these people to the borders of of, of the land that God promised to give them. Roughly what we know as Israel today, what was known as Canaan in those days. And Moses sent out 10, 12 spies to spy out the land. And while two of them said, we can go in and take this land, ten of them were completely overwhelmed by visible reality. They said, this is a great land, just like you promised, plenty to eat. But there are formidable people in that land. And they let invisible reality uh, visible realities completely obliterate their memory of God's promises and God's power that He had already shown in bringing them this far. For this act of unbelief they were sentenced to wander for 40 years in the wilderness until all those 20 years and older had perished. And a whole new generation was raised up that were ready to go in and take up the promised land and they found themselves on the banks of the Jordan River on the eastern side of the land of Canaan. Moses by now was ready to pass on and he had handed over leadership to a man named Joshua. And Joshua does what Moses did. He sent some two spies and he said, spy out the city of Jericho. Now you need to know something about Canaan in those days. It wasn't one country with one king. There were 31 different kings in that tiny parcel of land that we know today as Israel. Because each little city was a state unto itself with its own king. And Jericho was one of these city states. And the first place that these two spies go to is a brothel. Now that's a bit of a shock. These are the people of God. What are these spies doing in a brothel? Well... They were wandering slaves in in, in the desert. They wouldn't exactly meld in with the population of Canaan. If there was one place where the presence of strangers might be overlooked, it was in a brothel. Maybe that's why they went. We don't know. Anyway, the important thing is that's where Rahab enters the picture. Let's read from Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. Well, I guess the disguise didn't work very well. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out those men whom, who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. Verse 8 goes on to say, Before the spies laid on for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely are destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family. Because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Now throughout this study we've been stacking up what visible and invisible reality looked like to the people. What did visible reality look like to Rahab? She was a prostitute. And it doesn't take much imagination to realize that she didn't have much of a future. A nightly abuse of her body, perhaps more than once. only to be discarded. Probably a growing awareness that whatever attractiveness she possessed for men, would, the inexorable march of time would take care of that very quickly as well. And that she would be totally useless for anything, discarded on the ash heap of humanity. As for marriage, children, nobility in a destiny, those were categories of thought she wasn't even used to. But all she could do was to make enough money to keep herself alive. That was visible reality for her. The other visible reality was Jericho. Well walled, well armed, well guarded, strategically located on the banks of the Jordan River. And all these people outside were just a motley crew of des- desert marauders. Visible reality said Jericho was impregnable. At least to these people. And so she could have chosen to act on visible reality and handed over the spies. But there was invisible reality as well. Your maps of that time will show you there were ancient trade routes that ran all the way from Egypt to Jericho. And news was traveling along these trade routes of this uh, amazing group of people for whom their God, and they all thought in terms of tribal gods in those days, that their God was this awesome God who actually opened up a path to the Red Sea and had humbled the whole army of Pharaoh. Rahab had heard about that. The people in Jericho had heard about it. And then she'd heard that right across the banks of the Jordan on the other side, two other fairly powerful kings had been obliterated by this army. And so she chose to act on the basis of invisible reality. She affirmed to these men, first of all, notice at the bottom of that thing, she said, I know that the Lord, notice the tense of the word, has given this land to you. As of now, there were only two spies in there. And Jericho was still impregnable. And she says, I know God has already given this land to you. That's an affirmation on invisible reality. And then she said something else. She said, I know that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. In other words, He's not a tribal deity like we think. I believe and acknowledge that He's my God as well. Those were two astounding affirmations of invisible reality. And then the third one, and she says, will you show me kindness? Which prostitute has ever been shown kindness by a man? Not only that, she's asking this of men that she believes are going to be victorious soldiers. What are victorious soldiers known for in times of battle? Raping and pillage and plunder, not kindness to women, least of all prostitutes. So here was another amazing act of faith in invisible reality. God has already given this land to you. Your God is God over heaven and earth. And I believe you will be kind to. And so the spies grant her the request. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. The men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible. As for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord to the window. You know, it just occurred to me uh, another magnificent metaphor of faith in invisible reality. What kind of a defense is a piece of thread against metallic swords and daggers that she knew was coming? Did it work? (laughs) Chapter 6. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young man who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. Here we see some more evidences of invisible reality. Obviously, this woman had enough influence with presumably her cleaner living family, her parents and her siblings, to persuade them. It wasn't just her own faith. She managed to persuade a whole bunch of other people in invisible reality. That persuasiveness cannot have come without earnestness and that earnestness could not have come without a deep-seated conviction that the God of these people is the God of heaven and earth and our land has already been given to them. You know, the, the irony of this all is when the city was burning, when they were being attacked, And it was a judgment of God, by the way, upon a totally degraded community. It wasn't just some military ambition that Israel had. The irony of it is when a city was being attacked, the only safe place was a brothel at night. Go figure. And perhaps the most amazing thing of all is that Rahab was still a prostitute when God delivered. Isn't it interesting that the soldiers did not say to her when they were making the deal, we will spare you if from now till the time we come you don't have any more clients. If you clean up your life, then we will take care of you. They didn't say that. They said tie the scarlet thread and bring anybody you can into your house. That was the only condition. As Beth Moore said in her study, this was rehab before she ever went to rehab. I've never forgotten that sentence. It structured my whole thinking for today. But, You know, the most rudimentary step of faith that your God is the God of heaven and earth was enough for God. Don't let anybody tell you the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. This is an amazing, amazing demonstration of love and grace. But the God who loved Rahab before she went to rehab loved her too much to leave her there. And so he went to work on her. What is Rahab's subsequent history? 6.25, but Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And notice these words, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. First they put her outside the camp as an unclean person. But by the time Joshua was actually written, and I don't know how much longer it was after the events, she was now living in the camp, which meant one and only one thing. She who had come out of the brothel now had the brothel taken out of her. She had come to realize by now that these people were marked by holy laws that a God gave to them, not to cramp their style, but to make life harmonious and meaningful. She had learned about the worship of this God and that imperfect people could worship this holy God because he had provided a sacrificial system for them. And now she had begun slowly to live a life that was marked by holiness and harmony and by worship that centers all of life. But if it stopped there, it would be amazing. But that's not the end. Jump all the way to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5. Solomon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. And down in verse 16. Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary. Of whom was born Jesus who was called the Christ. Not only did he take her out of Jericho that was under sentence of judgment. Before she ever changed. Not only did he give her acceptance in a community, he then dignified this woman who had only known men who used her body for their own pleasure. The gift of a husband. Some man who loved her enough. And by the way, in those community-driven places, it is almost impossible that he didn't know her history. A further mark of grace. And if that wasn't enough, God gave them a son. His name was Boaz. And if you study the next book of the Bible that comes after Joshua and judges, and then Ruth you'll find this Boaz was a remarkable man a tender hearted and a kind and a loving man and he married another woman named Ruth who was also a non-Israelite a Moabite woman where did he learn this kind of tenderness obviously the father was a tender man to love someone like Hagar uh, Rahab but Rahab as an outsider knew what it was to become an insider and I wonder what kind of a role Rahab played in Boaz marrying Ruth a, hit, uh, a Moabite What she didn't know, or maybe she was alive, they lived a bit longer in those days. She was going to have a great, great, great grandson who was going to be the greatest king Israel had ever known, King David. And what she didn't know was that centuries later, the Messiah whose advent we are celebrating today would come from her. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that the hall of fame is not just made up of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Joseph, but a harlot named Rahab? That God could take out of Jericho, spare her before she ever went to rehab, then loved her so much that he would not leave her the way she was, gave her an acceptance among a community of people, gave her a dignified her life with a husband, a progeny that she could never have even wished, imagined one day, and then to even become ancestor of Messiah. He had transformed a legacy of shame into a legacy of joy that would affect the nations of the world. And it all began. It all began with one rudimentary act of faith in invisible reality when visible reality was screaming the exact opposite. You are useless and the city is impregnable so just give up the men and escape with your life. But she refused to act on visible reality. And she said, I believe your God is the God of heaven and earth. Spare me and everybody I can influence. Her destiny is our destiny and therefore can determine our identity today. Buchanan tells an amazing story. Let me read it for you. He was a pastor in Vancouver. He says, I sat one day with a young woman who had a desolate past, a blighted landscape of childhood neglect and sexual abuse, and stemming from this many broken pieces of her own bad choices. She poured out her story and I sat speechless. And now I should say what? I prayed one of my desperate prayers. Oh God, oh God, oh God. Most of us can identify with having prayed that way at some time or another. And then God slipped me an insight. Timely as manna dropped from the sky. He showed me that her past was beyond repair, at least on my watch. If there was any good thing there to salvage, I knew not how. But in the same instant, God showed me she still had her future. And it was vast, vast unbroken, pristine, radiant. It was pure promise, a glory that would be revealed in her, which is simply to say, what will happen matters more than what has happened. I shared all this with that young woman and it became manner to her too. I watched her put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, the oil of gladness for the ashes of sorrow. I watched her rise and greet the day as it truly was a day the Lord has made. And I know the unfolding of the story beyond that day, how that young woman learned to greet each day likewise, how she learned to dig always a little deeper, travel always a little further into the hope and the future that were hers in Christ. I know now how she met a man, fell in love, married and had children. And I know how, though some days her past mounted its best attempt to reclaim her for its own, she learned to nurture again and again her eager expectations and to refuse to surrender to anything less. There are Rahabs today who are having exactly the same story written for them 3,300 years later. It doesn't matter what your past is, your future is bright. Will you lay a hold of your new destiny in Jesus that is invisible by faith, so that you can live wisely in visible reality now? Weinhammer may be looking for unrealistic optimists. God is looking for realistic optimists. Only he says the reality that will fuel your optimism is not visible reality, but invisible reality. So will you do what that woman did in Mark Buchanan's? Man or woman? Will you dare to believe that Rahab's God is your God? Will you dare to take, put on the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness? The oil of joy instead of the anointing of sorrow? Will you learn to greet each day with this is the day the Lord has made I will rejoice in it. Will you go each day deeper travel and each day a little bit further and then when the past mounts up to try and crush you will you once again take a hold of invisible reality and refuse to give it. That's the glorious possibility that is laid out for you today. But some of you haven't taken the first step yet. Because this journey began with that first step of faith that Israel's God was the God of heaven and earth. And you need to do that. Acknowledge that. And tie that scarlet cord around your house as a symbol that you are now part of a different people of God and therefore their God is your God. Of course, you're not in Jericho. You're not living in a literal city. The city that you're in is not under threat of attack. But one of the dominant features of invisible reality is that every one of us is separated from a holy God and under sentence of eternal judgment. It's not fashionable, but it's true. It's not fashionable, invisible reality, but it's true. And it doesn't matter whether you're like Rahab or have some other blighted past. It matters not where you're at the other end of the spectrum where you can point to all kinds of achievements in corporate North America. Or your pedigree family. Or your church attendance. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're a down and outer or an up and outer. We both have to deal with a holy God. In fact, the irony of it is in Jesus' times, if you read the Gospels, the prostitutes and the tax collectors got to Jesus a lot faster than the Pharisees who were the religious right who did all the right things on the outside and who betrayed and crucified Jesus. Why? Because those innkeepers and prostitutes were able to see their condition so much easier while we up and outers have much, much harder time to see our desperate need in our condition. So all of us, all of us in our natural condition are separated from a holy God. And salvation and deliverance comes not from scarlet cords anymore nor from any other religious symbol, but the reality that the scarlet cord symbolized, which is Jesus' death on the cross, as was portrayed for us so beautifully in that song. It was His blood that was shed on on the cross, that purchased for us before God an adequate and a total atonement for our sins. And so as surely as Rahab and her family were brought out from a city that was destined for destruction, you and I are brought out of that through faith in Christ. And it is by that kind of faith that we become part of the people of God, not by any ritual, not by baptism, not by membership, not by showing up in church, not by giving money, nothing. It is through faith in Jesus. And then, then as part of the people of God, you will begin to grow and change because Jesus Christ's death on the cross was far far more than a fire insurance policy against the flames of hell you know let me tell you something any clever preacher man or woman with a gift for words and ruthless enough to manipulate people can frighten somebody out of hell but listen that's not the issue Eternal life is not getting out of hell. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ that begins now. And for that, fear is useless. You don't frighten people into a relationship. I have to create a desire within your heart. That's why Ruth's story, that's why Rahab's story is there in the Bible. That you might long for a God like this. It's not about getting out of hell. It's about finding Jesus and entering into a relationship with him. A God who is able to take a harlot before she goes to rehab and bring her out of judgment because of a rudimentary act of faith. And then blesses her with a community that through worship and the word begins to transform her. Blesses her with a man who loves her enough. Then blesses her with children which are a blessing. And what children? That will transmit the faith in a way that she could not have imagined in her wildest dreams. Jesus' death on the cross is not only a demonstration of the holiness of God and the judgment that sin makes us deserve. It is a stupendous demonstration of the love of God and opens the way for this kind of relationship. For the Apostle Paul, writing in Romans chapter 5, says, God commends his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is not religion but faith that opens the door to this community. Uh, in my homework this week, uh, in the video that you will watch tonight, uh, I was just really struck afresh by how appropriate those words are leaving a legacy. Because one of the things that was impressed on me was that one of my main tasks and ours is to equip the coming generation to live as if they were the last generation. And if they aren't, they will do that to the next one. And you know, today, uh, this morning, it's too bad you, this thing is right here. When I saw Natalie sitting between Jack and Steve. So that's the vision translated into reality. As we were walking and Jack was saying, I'm so excited today. Because Jack's been working with Natalie. Transmitting that faith, those skills. And so what I want to do today is to do the benediction specifically for all those who are under 20 and above. So below 20, can you please stand up if you're here? May not be many of you, but whoever you are, just stand up. (laughs) Okay, there's two or three up there as well. Some up here. Natalie, come on up here. here. There you go. Okay, we're going to bless them. And the rest of you join me in that blessing. And then I'm going to bless you after that as well. May God grant to you eyes to be able to see the future that is yours. Visible reality around you may become increasingly frightening. But invisible reality around you will say to you that the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob and the blessed God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ is your God. And he will be with you wherever you go. May God give you eyes to see the unique gifts that he's given to you. And when the past in your life would come up to create doubt in your hearts may the Holy Spirit of God bring back to your mind what you have heard today. And may He give you faith in that future, that glorious possible as you take the faith that we give to you and transmit it to the next generation. May your destiny determine your identity from this day forward. And for the rest of us who are seated, my blessing for you and me, may God increasingly press upon us both the seriousness and the joy of leaving a legacy and transmitting that faith to the next generation. Go in peace.